Ciao. Ciao. Hey, don't hang up. This is Jello Ciao Ciao, the all Jello show. If you even think of hanging up or leaving the room for a scotch, we will murder you. Now listen, Great Creeperson and the Phantom Eric and Chris want to take you on a ride through dark alleys and bright rooms, long stairways, and backstage at the art gallery. If you want to live, you'll don your black gloves and join them for the ride. Ciao, ciao, everybody, and welcome to the episode 35 spectacular of Jalo Chow Chow, the all Jalo show. Dun, 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 dun. I talk and pause and then start talking again when someone else starts talking. It's really fun. You gotta, you gotta get a rhythm <laughs> down here sometime. <laughs> I am Raven number 14, Mr. Creep, and hey with me are two super fun guys, like the mushroom. Oh, I get it. Uh, <laughs> I'm wait, Chris. Wait I'm a second. Fu- okay. I'm a fun guy. I'm a fun guy, and uh, did you ever hear that other joke about the, 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 the piece of rope that went into the bar and the bartender said, we don't serve your kind, so he went outside and he rolled around in the dirt and messed up his hair and he came back in and he said, give me a beer, and the bartender said, didn't you just come in here? And he said, no, I'm afraid not. Ah. Uh, look at that. That was good. Yeah. Coming with the jokes, hot and heavy already. <laughs> did you hear that the um, bakery went bankrupt? No, Why? They ran out of dough. Uh. <laughs> All right, we are done. That was the episode, everyone. Okay, good. You're not going to put me on the spot or anything. Eric, tell us a bad joke. Um, uh, what do you call a masturbating cow? I don't know. Beef stroking off. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Oh, that was good. Little boy told me that one. I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) That's what they're teaching them in school these days. I hope you guys know that. The new math. Kids. Yeah. Right. Well, that happened. So tonight we are doing the uh, Dario Argento masturbation piece opera. Ta-da. We'll say you had a nicely timed uh, bench squeak. And- I had a what sneak? 
Something squeaked right after you said that. Oh. Someone's in a haunted house right now. I think it's Chris. Is it me? Is that... You hear that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think right. someone's trying to come in through the door behind you. I'll stop, uh -oh. I'll stop squeaking. I don't mind your squeaking. It's okay. It goes in with the, the squeaking floorboards right above me as people walk around, so it's okay. Uh, I do I do have some um, big Jallo Chow Chow news, if you guys are interested. Of course. Right. Let's get into it. Years ago, I asked a question to you all. Where does the Chow Chow come from at the beginning of the show? And now we know. That probably was literally years ago. Someone got it. Are you excited to find out what it was and who said it? Can we guess? Yeah. You've guessed before, but guess again. I can't guess. Well, I, I just want to guess who said it. Was it, uh, was it our good friend uh, and new group member, Brian Martinez? No. Oh. <laughs> I thought he'd be all over that one. I thought you were going to guess where the chow chow came from. Oh, I have Do no you idea. you want to guess who guessed where the chow chow came from? No. Chris, can you guess who guessed where the chow chow came from? I can't guess who guessed, but I also can't guess where the chow chow came from because I know the answer already so it wouldn't, oh, be, do you? it wouldn't be a guess and the oh, reason okay. why i know the answer is because i saw the message from the person who guessed it i just don't remember who it is i think it was on twitter i think i may have even sent it to you oh yeah i don't i know. haven't looked at twitter in a really long time so it's, it's, maybe someone guessed a while back and i just oh. going to give them credit right now <laughs> But someone guessed and sent me a message on Facebook, and to kill the suspense... Don't kill it. Uh, what? Let's talk about who guessed it for a little bit longer. Okay. Go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> it wasn't um, Brian Martinez, was it? Uh, if he did it on Twitter, I didn't see it. No. And I already guessed him, so... Oh. Was it, uh, was it Matty? Ding, ding, ding. Maddie T. He was my gut. I should have gone with my gut on that one. Maddie Thomas Taylor guessed the answer. And the answer is Chris, go ahead and ruin it. Oh, it's um, a scene in the lovely and wonderful and fantastically effective Black Belly of the Tarantula. It is. Did someone already guess it and I'm being a dick right now? No, but I remember just seeing somebody guess it and you saying, <clears throat> or, or saying, I don't know. We're totally ruining this yeah, entire segment. We killed it. What, um, what's the actual scene? Like, I don't, I'm it's not... the scene where he first comes home to the apartment um, and his egg cooking wife says hello to him ah. by saying ciao and he says ciao. Yeah. Okay. Is that where the idea for the entire show came from? Yeah, I had no idea to ever do a podcast about this until I saw her say that, and I was like, "Fuck!" There <laughs> no needs way. to be a podcast about this stat. And it was originally going to be about cooking eggs. It was. <laughs> it was going to be goodness. called "Pinche My Wavels." 
No one said you couldn't still do it. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. Oh, uh, because did. I can't speak Spanish to save my life. <laughs> well, we all know you're not busy enough, so get on that. Well, if you want to know what I spent my hardcore depression two weeks doing, um, someone cut the catalytic converter out of my Honda Element. Uh, not the Element. Yeah, they hit five cars on my street, all Honda Elements. What? And that sucked. And that was a $1,300 fix. What's wrong with people? Yeah. Did you find out if this guy just has some weird psychopathic reaction towards Honda elements? No, they're the only car that you could slide under with a saw and oh. cut it out without putting oh, the car on the Oh, my God. I yeah. Just and then they shake them out to get the platinum because there's platinum in it. And they mm. shake it out and then melt the platinum down and sell the platinum. Wow. Hmm. Pretty awesome. Whip so I think I'm going to get my element lowered. Yeah, because my first response was to put razor blades all over the bottom of my car yeah. so they would uh -huh. like cut themselves. But then I thought they might beat the shit out of my car if they were like bleeding to death. <laughs> so It'd be very Argento of you to do that. Yeah, it would. Wow. So, yeah. So there's that. Um, and then what else? Oh, and then I was just depressed so I watched all five seasons of The Wire, Ooh. like in four days, and that okay. was kind of rough. And I started watching so, that because I'm in between shows, and I wanted to catch up on that show because I hear it's amazingly, like, fantastic, uh, one of the best shows ever. But no, it's I not. I haven't but gotten past neat. the first episode. It, it's neat. The the first season writing is really rough, but um, it's it's neat. It, I, I'm glad I watched it, but I don't think I would ever go back and rewatch it. So there's that. So it's not as good as Breaking Bad, like everybody said. No, not at all. Okay. It's so dated. The camera work in the first season is awful, but um, it's weird because each season is about a different thing it's like a different case kind of thing and yeah. so they'll have different people and they have some of the same cop people but everything else is different it's just it's it's neat how, how they do it that's it seasons one and three i think are the best even though one was written really shitty so moving right so it's not good depression therapy no, no, but I've been watching. Um, I've been I rewatched the first season of The Sopranos, okay, to see if it was as good as I remember it being, and it is. It is. It totally is. First season. So, so that was probably the first TV show that really kind of revolutionized the way yeah, TV is now, for sure. So you got to give it that. Yeah. Good characters on that show. But anyway, <clears throat> so yeah, everyone else super depressed or anything? Or are we happy now? No, uh, I'm not no. depressed at all. Thank you very yeah. much. Good. <laughs> I'm so getting two thirds though. of the show will continue on with the upbeat, <laughs> sunshine personalities. Yes. Yeah. 
That's all we need. Let's put on our happy faces, bitches. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Chin I would up. just like to give a shout out to everybody who is liking the Jalo score page on Facebook. Um, not too long ago, I think I was under 100, and now we're up at 185. Yay. With, uh, 31 likes just this week. So thanks to everybody who is making their way there. I know we've got a couple of fans of the podcast who are pimping out um, Jalloscore.com and the Jalloscore.com Facebook page. And for any of the people, obviously, who have liked the page but are not involved in the inner circle of the Jallo Chow Chow Facebook page, um, please uh, request an invite or something, however, whatever that protocol is, and we will let you in. We have yeah, should no, we just do a page? We have no auditing on that whatsoever. No, I, I like the closed group because I think you can do a few, I think there are a few things like the, you can't do polls in a fan page. I've tried to do them on my Jalloscore.com entertainment website Facebook page, and they won't. It doesn't work. So okay, um, so we'll keep it for the polls. Yeah, I like it the way it is. Plus, it's kind of like you know you've got kind of uh, you know sketchy subject matter sometimes. Yeah. And uh, you know you can feel confident that people who request uh, to see the page know what they're getting into. So they don't mind nip slips. Right. You just have to, when you knock on the door, you just have to say the password. Then we'll let you in. And it's New England Clam Chowder. <laughs> See, we even give you the password on the show, so uh, it's really not that hard to get in. But is it the red or the white? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> all right. That's all you got to know. So, no Ace Ventura fans in the room. Got it. Point taken. Um, also, there was that um, bitchin' little video that we got a, a shout-out in. Yeah, that's right. I think that's why I gave gave Brian my first vote. Um, he recently joined the page, I believe, or the group. So now I'm calling it a page. But, uh, yeah, he's... I guess he does some writing elsewhere and, uh, and put out a video. FilmDeviant.com? Yes. There you yep. go. Thank you. <laughs> I was looking for it. But yeah, he, he did a, a fun video, even wearing black gloves. So they're really getting into it. And uh, he shared the video on our page that he did with Film Deviant and uh, giving us a, a little bit of a shout out, uh, sending people our way if they wanted to get, I think it was a little introduction to Giallo and uh, sending people our way if they wanted to, to get more into it, which because we're experts on it. So yeah. That's and also, that guy, his name is really David Chappelle, not that oh. guy. So He's that guy. Yeah. So that that also happened. So that was awesome. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Yeah. Hey, we also got a uh, Facebook message from Al while we were on break. We did. Back. Back at the end of April. Yes. Um, Answering some of our questions. Am I reading that? Yeah, I think people like it the most when you read. That's probably not true. 
Ciao, ciao, everybody. Sorry it's taken me so long to get around to answering your questions from the last few episodes, but I've been trying to get accurate answers from good sources, and sometimes that takes a while. Regarding the Switchblade cane scene and Forbidden Photos, the first Sunday of every month there is an antique flea market type thing here on our town square. Well, there's a guy there who sells, among other things, old canes. When I asked him if he'd ever seen anything with a retractable hidden blade, the <laughs> look on his face was very much the look that uh, the coin dealer gave me when I asked him if he had any um, phone tokens. That is kind of like, what the fuck would you want that for? <clears throat> After a brief conversation, I was left with the distinct impression that no, those canes were never a normal thing over here. Um, I also got the impression that I'm getting a reputation as the weird American dude who's always looking for stupid shit. Um, <laughs> regarding whether or not Italians consider Suspiria to be a giallo, for this, I referred first to a copy of Giallo e Thrilling, made in Italy, by Antonio Bruschini and Antonio Tentori. See, this is why you had me do it, so I could watch <laughs> names. So, um, though they write quite a bit about Dario Argento, including entire sections for Phenomena, Opera, Trauma, the Stendhal Syndrome and Sleepless, Suspiria only gets um, a passing mention in the lead-up to the section about Phenomena, where they refer to it as a black fairy tale. Then I turned to the Italian film nerd Blogsphere and found a rather recent entry about Suspiria at the Cinema... Genre cinema and it, the writer tells of discovering Argento first through Deep Red in the 90s but being a little disappointed because it was a giallo and not a horror like they had expected. Suspiria however was right up their alley and the writer considers it to be Argento's masterpiece and then he left the link for it um, regarding making the phone ring a million times like some rude ass motherfucker oh no that was never considered any cooler over here than it was over there blame that shit on Lumberto <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's all I have for now today is liberation day so I'm off to barbecue something and have a shot or two of grappa. Okay, Al, what the hell's grappa? I don't know what grappa is. Next question coming already. <laughs> well, I've, I've had grappa. It's like a, um, I believe, uh, oh, it's, it's a type of liquor, obviously, but I don't know if it's an after dinner or before dinner drink. Um, I think it's usually an after dinner drink, which would be like a digestif of some sort. It's usually yellow. Uh, it's a type of brandy. And um, if you've ever, if you ever gone to a bar 
uh, where they might have any sort of Italian food, there's going to be a really, really tall bottle that says Galliano. Yeah. Super, super tall, like, you know, a two feet tall bottle of, of yellow tinged liquor, and that's grappa. I don't think Galliano is a good version or a good, good, um, a good example. I think there's probably better ones, but... Um, then again, um, Al is probably laughing because Galliano is probably not a grappa. So I'm gonna quickly. You know that the Galliano bottle is supposedly unbreakable. No, it is not a grappa. I just looked it up. <laughs> We're testing this out live on air. That's how we it's do things. It's a sweet herbal yeah. liqueur. So grappa is definitely a digestif, though. It is a brandy made from pomace. Pomace is depressed skins and seeds of grapes, a winemaker's leftovers. There you go. So basically, the grappa is just winemaker trash. Leftover wine. Yeah. Yeah. Fermented into brandy. There it is. You've learned something different. <laughs> All right. So, um, are we getting into it now, or what? Let's get into it. Yeah. And the foreplay. <clears throat> All right. So, we're going to be talking about opera. I guess we could play the trailer right now, if you want. Yeah, the trailer is actually somewhat entertaining from a non-visual level. So, let's, uh, let's check it out. Are you guys ready? Here it comes. trailers but clearly intended for an American audience so yeah yeah I was very confused when I started watching a night at the opera and saw Groucho Marx and said shit <laughs> I think I'm watching the wrong movie but I'm bumps 
And you just kept watching it, didn't you? Yeah, because it's really funny. <laughs> ain't no duck soup, but what is? So, alright. <clears throat> so who, who's who's tackling this? Um, we're, we're so prepared. I think, yeah. I think Chris is most qualified to. Okay. As the Argento file. The, Arge the Argento apologist. Okay. <clears throat> we're calling it an apologist now. Well, a lot of people... There's a, there's a, a big uh, distinction between the people who like and don't like this film. And um, it's interesting, actually. Uh, I'm looking for... I don't know... Now, this is an interesting thing. So, um, I have in front of me the... Blood and Black Lace book by uh, Adrian Luther Smith, um, which does not feature a write-up on opera. Um, I don't know why. It is clearly a giallo, um, but it is omitted. Now, I also have uh, So Deadly, So Perverse, Volume 1, but of course that's not there. So I'm going to have to improvise a little bit, which is fine. Um, Dario Argento's opera is, believe it or not, a, a movie, a film about an opera. Well, it's actually kind of one of those things where it's the film within the film meta thing um, that's really um, interesting to watch because you kind of think about how it was to make a film where they centered around making a, a production. Um, at any rate, the film starts out with the lead um, performer in Verdi's Macbeth, who um, gets to the point where she cannot take standing on the stage with the ravens crowing in her ear and decides to uh, leave the stage and walk off the set and quit. Um, well, actually, she doesn't quit. She just kind of runs off in a huff, but then she gets hit by a car. Um, and so as a result, the understudy is called in. Her name is Betty. And um, once Betty is uh, now in, in the, the starring role as Lady Macbeth, strange things start to happen. And a black glove killer uh, starts to make his presence known um, amongst the staff, um, which includes uh, several very interesting and well-orchestrated murder sequences. Um, but the main gimmick in the film is that there's a big voyeurism theme going on. Um, and the killer uh, has a little interesting method of taking Betty, who again is our lead role here, uh, tying her up and uh, forcing her to watch the murders take place by uh, placing needles under both of her eyes, uh, taped under uh, her bottom eyelid, so that if she were to actually blink or close her eyes, um, she would tear, you know, her eyelids off. So she's forced to watch everything that's going on. Um, so that happens twice in the film. Um, the very first murder actually only takes place in um, an observing uh, box of the opera. Um, so not, I'm getting ahead of myself, but basically Betty is now um, designated as the lead. 
Um, and she's very scared because uh, Macbeth is notorious for bringing bad luck. Um, and so she's, she's very apprehensive about playing the role. Um, the first night of the performance, um, one of the stagehands, or one of the, I guess, what was that guy? Was he like a, a, an usher, maybe? Yeah, he looked like an usher. He gets, um, he, he, he kind of storms, or, or he kind of barges in on the killer who's watching the opera performance from a high box and uh, says, hey, you're not allowed in here, and the killer just smashes his head against a, um, a coat hook and in the process knocks a lighting uh, device off of, the, uh, off of the side of the box and causes it to crash, and so all of these disruptions are unnerving Betty, our lead actress, um, who basically is kind of frigid and um, kind of uh, distant when it comes to um, relationships and whatnot. So um, after the first performance, She's getting all these accolades and she's with her boyfriend and we have the first scene where um, the boyfriend walks off as, as they often do in these type of films to go get a drink after they try to have sex or maybe they don't actually have sex. Um, and when he comes back, she's tied up and as he approaches, um, the killer um, lunges at him and starts to stab him in a very brutal stabbing scene while she sits and watches. Um, and so the film goes on in this way um, basically, um, with a lot of tension, a lot of really interesting and cool um, set pieces, um, finally culminating in um, this interesting uh, ending, uh, this climax where the director of the play decides that he's going to use the Ravens to sniff out the murderer uh, in kind of the climax of the film. Uh, and then Beyond that, we, we you know we we discover the identity of the of the killer, and we have the um, the post uh, the post unveiling scenes, which are a little bit um, off kind of often left field, and uh, a little bit um, I would say unconventional for Jalo standards. Um, but again, this is a film that was um, put together in late '80s. Uh, it features a very um, kind of cryptically uh, head-scratching soundtrack. Um, and I know we can talk about the soundtrack in, in more detail when we get to that point, but it's basically a combination of some interesting electronic music um, and some heavy metal. Um, the problem with the heavy metal is it's not like authentic heavy metal like in Argento's previous film. It's kind of like pseudo copycat Italian heavy metal, but I kind of not, that's not really fair to say to the musicians who worked on the soundtrack, but that's kind of what I got from it. Um, it's but no Judas Priest. I really think that um, opera, uh, you know, there's not much more to say about the plot. Uh, we can talk about the specific things that happened. Obviously, the, the scene with um, Dar uh, Daria Nicolodi and the peephole is really interesting, and the murders are interesting, and um, the whole unveiling thing, but I think that, that for me the most important part about opera is that it's probably Argento's um, best attempt at a, a giallo in his late period. Uh, I think everything kind of starts to go downhill uh, in as much as, in, in as far as quality is concerned. I think this is probably one of his best photographed films. 
Um, he really, it really seems like he had stopped experimenting. It, it, it almost feels like the film is, isn't, it, like, I, like Tenebrae really doesn't seem like um, an experiment either, but I know that, you know, that for in particular, there's always some gimmick that Argento is trying to do with every one of his films uh, from a technical or a stylistic standpoint. And like in Tenebrae, it, it was that crane shot that went from one side of the apartment building to the other. And obviously in Suspiria, it was all the colors. Uh, in Deep Red, it was the music. And in opera, I mean, the idea of you know, the brutality of tying um, the main character up and forcing her to watch, it kind of hints towards that kind of torture porn movement that would come eventually in modern horror cinema. Um, I think maybe that was an influence over those films. But also, I really think that Argento really didn't experiment that much. I think he really hit his technical stride with this one and just, it almost feels like he's just, you know, performing instead of experimenting with his camera now. Uh, There's so many shots and so many scenes in this movie that are just, they're, you can tell how well orchestrated they are and how well planned they are and they, and they work in, in most cases. So, um, but the movie itself is, you know, as far as the storyline is concerned, it's obviously quite convoluted um, and the ending is has kind of divided people uh, <laughs> in, in two separate camps of I like it and I hate it kind of thing but um, personally uh, you know my opinions are that like I said it's probably Argento's last good giallo um, and probably one of the best giallos of the late period um, because if you look at the list of Jolly that came after opera, that came in the 90s and in the 2000s, there isn't many, or there aren't many. I should use my grammar properly. And, um, you know, if you look at the ones that are, you know, if you take Argento out of the mix, there really aren't any uh, Jolly that have come out, or Jolly that have come out um, in, in, in the post-90s, you know, cinema. I know that there's been this kind of neo-Jalo uh, movement with um, Amer and uh, the something Strange Colors of Your Body's Tears or whatever the heck that film is called. But those, those are like art films as far as I'm concerned. I watch them and they don't really follow any kind of Jalo format other than, the, uh, other than the kind of mood and attitude of the, of the style. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like opera, but you know, obviously I've talked way too long already. This is supposed to just be a synopsis, so go someone else so I can pick well, it up. Well, to hit what you just said <clears throat> about um, the 90s and 2000s, I think the 90s killed um, Jalo in the sense that when you look at the predecessors of the movies, like when you look at like the late 60s and 70s a lot of the great ones were or at least in my opinion were all about kind of like excess and like over stylistic um, whether it's the camera work or the locations or the look the jet setters and when you when the early 90s happened there was this real hatred towards spending and real hatred towards people who had a lot in my opinion i don't know but i think it's i, I think feel the like 90s killed it 
yeah, the, the early 90s are kind of underrated as far as the winds of change, the culture change that happened. Uh, you look at any kind of genre film around that time, it just was took a huge nosedive. I remember struggling when I was doing my little trip through 100 Years of Horror, getting into the early 90s. I was having a hard time finding something to cover on there because people just, I mean, until... I mean, I'm, I know I'm getting into horror here, but until Scream came along, people were sick of the the facade of a lot of these kind of genre films, Jalo included. And uh, I think that people were just itching for a, a whole new uh, change in what they were going to be watching, whether it was a film like Scream that kind of poked fun at it. It was more meta. Uh, you didn't have a lot of meta Jolly films, I guess you could say, but... But it that's was just the a, funny thing because Chris was saying that this is kind of meta. Like Yeah, and this in Stage Fright, I think, is why they stand out as maybe being in demons even. Kind of stand out as being like uh pillars in the Italian eighties film industry. Right. Now uh, let's talk about the movie more before I start getting weird. But uh <laughs> <clears throat> there are there are some things about this movie that were intriguing. Like, for instance, the opening of the movie. How um, the actress who got hit by the car, who, the, how Betty got to be in the play or whatever. Um, she's, like, walking backwards through the whole thing, and there's this really long, giant shot of her all pissed off and like just being dragged through um, and people running up to her and all this stuff. And she goes all the way through the theater and out into the street and then apparently gets hit by a car. And then the only other time we see that person, cause we never see her face. I don't think is when she's um, sitting watching the opera on television and gets all pissed off. Right. Am I correct? Right. In that? Yeah. She like throws a glass or something. So we never see her. Right. Yes, right. We never see her, but the thing that's so—I mean, the thing that's so strange about the whole thing is that when you watch the scene where she's being chased by her entourage, if you think about physically what's going on there, it doesn't make any sense. Like the way that they did the camera. So is the camera attached to her back? I mean, she's not walking backwards. You know what I mean? Like I know you—you you just mentioned it, like. I'm watching it and I'm going, this is brilliant, like the way that they filmed this and everybody just reacting to her and and um, and running up and trying to catch her and try to make her. But if you watch, you can clearly see that they're making faces at the camera as if they were making faces at this person. Yeah. Um, to get, you know, to, to make her, you know, like, hey, look at me, I need you to come back here or please sign this autograph for me or, you know, and you could see like her bodyguard leaving um, at one point, he shows up a couple more times. He shows up later to present the, the stinky perfume to Betty. Um, but yeah, it, is she really walking backwards that whole way? Of course not. She's walking forward. So is the camera attached to the back of her neck? You know, is that what we're supposed to think? Like... Now, but was the reason why she was never revealed because we were supposed to think she might have been the killer? Like, was she, like, a red herring in this at all to you guys? You could probably say that. I mean, you know, I've seen... Uh, opera. I think that's part of it. I know that you're not supposed to bring the production of the film into 
Yeah, I know you're not supposed to bring the. I thought I was on mute, <laughs> but um, I know Vanessa Redgrave was supposed to play this role, and it was supposed to be a lot bigger of a role, and they had to make it a lot smaller because she refused to be in it once she got her what she was supposed to be paid. Mm. Which I thought, thought was kind of funny, but um, so yeah, I don't know why they they deduced her role or they reduced it to being this off-air Charlie Brown parent. Uh, personality only other than to make her seem like well we can't see her face because she's the killer yeah yeah well I mean you know for me I I first saw opera a long long time ago um, and I didn't know a lot about uh, Jolly back then I wasn't really familiar with the genre as much as I am now so um, I was watching it because I was really intrigued by the idea of the needles and um, that whole thing with the device of, you know, the voyeurism and the, and the torture kind of thing. And I didn't really pay attention to the, um, to the detective story or the whodunit story so much. And I had seen plenty of like screen grabs in Fangoria and other magazines that showed the killer, that showed basically the the guy that you see you know throughout the film but this time he's got one of his eyes missing and you know that's that's quite an image and once you realize when you watch the film that this is who the killer is um, you know I think for me I never really followed the whodunit because I already knew I guess subconsciously at least uh, who the killer was so, you know, whether or not Mara Chakova is a red herring that I would have noticed, um, I don't know, because I simply didn't, I simply already kind of, I, at the time, when I, when I paid a little bit more closer attention to the story, I don't think I was, I was paying it, you know, I, I wasn't looking for red herring because I already knew, you know, who the killer was, so. See, the whodunit bit in it is kind of weird, though, anyway, because when he comes into the film the first time yeah that just seems like the perfect moment to introduce a character who's probably the killer right you know what i'm saying like they, they didn't really <clears throat> try to make anyone else a suspect and she didn't really try to figure it out yeah exactly like she she had the it was the kind of Argento thing where she had a dream and she was trying to remember the dream and remember what it meant and all that crap but she doesn't really try and then I don't understand why she won't go to the cops at the beginning well, like yeah. did she think that he, the cop she met at the beginning was the killer and that's why she didn't want to go to the cops like I just, I, I never thought... understood the story yeah was, was her agent involved in that somehow, like telling her not to, or someone? I felt like no, someone had told her to go to the police, and she said she. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I got it all wrong, but yeah, I thought it was. Yeah, I don't know if they were going to hint towards some kind of dark past that she had, and then it, yeah, it just never got around to. It. So I kind of just forgot about that, that whole aspect of the story. But yeah, it was her agent, and then even the, uh, the, director of the play of the opera was telling her to go and that's who finally convinced her and so it kind of took those guys out of the running i suppose since they were pushing him towards the police so yeah you really are at a loss of suspects in this one yeah and, and i think that um the director mark 
is kind of going to be the de facto um, amateur detective here simply because um, he came up with this, you know, elaborate Ridiculous plan idea. With, uh, to throw the ravens out into the audience to catch the killer. I mean, couldn't he have just, like, opened the cage off stage? Like... But then they wouldn't have been able to have that scene where they crash the cage through the... <laughs> That's right. He's got a point there, Creep. I mean, it if you make... just did everything logically, you'd lose some of the best scenes in all of film. <laughs> well, I guess if we did anything logically, there wouldn't be a story to put all these pretty pictures to. So, it's good. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, he's the amateur detective because he comes up with the crow idea. Got it. Well, and, you know, between him and Betty, you know, it's kind of like they're both kind of trying to solve the case a little bit. Not really, but kind of. So, um, I basically, because we have two characters that are kind of trying to solve the case, I gave it an amateur detective score. Um, the other really controversial uh, point award for me was I gave um, a comic relief character point to the most re- that most ridiculous seamstress woman in the film. Uh, Dare you. She's the worst character in any giallo I've ever seen. Her her visual acting, regardless of what language she speaks, oh, is rents. terrible. And her dubbing, whoever dubbed her voice, is absolutely terrible as well. So, um... It was, she was so bad. It was like, I'm gonna overact on top of my overacting. So, stand back. Yeah, so that's why I gave her comic relief because that, there's no way anybody put that. They, they couldn't have put that in the film thinking that it was okay, thinking that it was it was normal to act this way. Yet somehow she'd fit right in on Project Runway. <laughs> <laughs> She's a great reality show star, <clears throat> not so much for a film, right? Well, the other thing about, I mean, I guess that scene too. One of the things that I found really strange was was that the killer would seem to jump out of plain sight because the only thing he was hiding behind would be the edge of the frame. Right. So, like, when the guy got stabbed, when the boyfriend got stabbed, he was standing right next to the girl. When the chick and the the good actor that you were just talking about, he just popped right out. When they were in the dressing room, which is a room the size of a toilet, he somehow managed to get the jump on the director. Like, it doesn't make any fucking sense at all how this person goes unseen in all of these attacks. Well, he's just a, he's just a, a dark shape in most of them, except for the last one. I don't know. I, I you know, the first, when when Betty is with the with the boyfriend, I think he's behind the white curtain, or he's supposed to be behind the white curtain. Um, but you know, I, I agree. I think that this guy is kind of a little bit superhuman when it comes to um, his ability to hide himself. But again, you know, I mean, he could get his eye poked out, get shot, get burned to death. And then still come back to kill somebody. Yeah, so he's like Jason Voorhees. Original slasher. <laughs> so, I mean, but there's so many other ridiculous things in the film that, you know, you might as well just say, well, let's chalk this one up to all the other ones. You know? But this is where I have my issue because it's like, 
Argento, like the difference between Argento and every other director of these films is that the other directors of these films will always talk about how, you know, they were just making movies. They had no idea that anyone would ever watch these again after their initial run and all this stuff. But I feel like Argento always felt like he was better than everybody else. Right. And that he had always thought deep down that his movies would be regarded as masterpieces forever kind of thing. I just... Well, he is... Yeah, they, they call him... Or he thinks that they call him the Italian Hitchcock, so he's going to live forever. And I, I, I kind of feel you on this one. I mean, even back to that costume designer when she unveils him or takes the mask off she acts like she knows him or you know knows him well knows who this person is but i don't remember ever seeing an interaction between these two characters um the the costume designer who ends up becoming well no there's a scene where um everybody is gathered in and the cop is talking to everybody about what happened to the um the boyfriend as well as what happened to the ravens and the Raven Handler is in there talking about how um, Raven. Yes, she did meet so him. She, so yes. she, yeah, she she but knew kind of. Kind of. Okay, knew so it was, was just one of her many overreactions. Oh yeah. No, for okay. sure. I mean, there, there's there's no, no I, doubt I mean, about though, Eric, on that one. There's yeah, no it's doubt like a about difference between that. revealing someone who oh, this guy was just talking to us the other day and the uh, seeing someone that you you know really well. It seemed like she was unveiling like a close friend. But something. isn't her reaction because of the fact that, wait a minute, this is the cop. This is the guy who's leading the investigation. How could he be the killer? That's her reaction. I don't know. She had the same reaction when she couldn't find a fucking magnifying glass. <laughs> she couldn't find so a I have no idea. <laughs> this is true. Right. You got to give it to you on that Just one. take her out of the equation. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, now, in- interestingly enough, I read somewhere, I don't know where it was, this is ages ago, that the scene where um, she swallows the, 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 the bracelet, which I can't remember, what does it even say on the bracelet? I thought it said 1923. Like That's all I could name see. or something? But... Yeah. Anyway, apparently that scene where the killer does this kind of like impromptu tracheotomy, um... Argento supposedly wasn't happy with the the gore effects and so um, as a last resort he filmed that scene where most of the gore was out of focus and if you look at that scene it's like you can see kind of some fleshy stuff and some red stuff and then um, you just see him lifting the um, you know the uh, the the brace the uh, the bracelet out of the um, the mess basically yeah Um, but you can't see it you know close up so i think that was what i read was as what was going on with that one because i mean the the gore is is pretty um is is pretty lifelike and realistic in almost all the cases um so it's kind of like why did that one become such a weird kind of abstract painting but what did the bracelet ever symbolize was Nothing. that another thing that never got never, talked about again? Yeah, it never made its way into anywhere. So this movie is just a bunch of broken promises. Yeah, yeah well, I'll, I'll say it. Sure. I, I thought it was going to refer to some kind of, um, like, a they are going to start talking about ghosts or some kind of curse or someone that was murdered back in the 1920s. 
Yeah, I just never got around to it. But this guy, he needed to have that bracelet. I mean, but did the bracelet say like her mom's name or something on it? No, I just saw. All I saw was the year too. What twenty nine or twenty? Yeah, it might have said something else, and we didn't see it as the audience because it was gonna eventually oh, yeah. be used later. But it never got used later. Yeah. I, in fact, I, you're right. I mean, you know, the film continues on, and. There's no more mention of this thing, and I, I don't even think I remember it. You know, like, what happened to the fucking bracelet? Where did it go? And did you notice that when the boyfriend came back in the room, he didn't have any tea with him? No, he forgot the tea. It's because, like because broken it, promises left and right. Yeah, but that was because Betty, first she said Jasmine, then she said Mint, and he was going to come back in and say, listen, make up your fucking mind before I go get your tea. <laughs> You cunt. That's what I thought he was going to say. Really? No. Well, he probably really. already started making the jasmine tea, and then yeah. she he showed him He was in the hallway talking to himself the whole time. Am I going to go in here and tell this bitch what's what? She doesn't give up the fun box. She changes her mind on the tea. Because, I mean, he waited a while, because homegirl got tied up and needle-eyed and everything. So... Uh. <laughs> I knew you guys were going to make me second guess why I like this film. I really don't... Okay, to be completely honest, when I first saw this movie, I saw it maybe two or three years ago, and I was like, holy shit, that was pretty intense, you know? I mean, the music was kind of weird, but that was a pretty crazy movie. This, this second time watching it, it was really, really hard to sit through it. And I had other people watching it, and I noticed, like, maybe 20 minutes into the movie, everyone started doing other stuff. Yeah. And then pretty soon, I was the only one watching the movie. And it was just, like, not to take my opinion from people leaving, but, you know, it just, it... I'm trying to think of, yes, the... I mean, they sold the movie to me as a kid. I mean, I guess I was a little older than a kid at the time, but the video cover for this was just the girl's eyes with the needles, right. and it just said opera really big on it. So I always knew that cover and always thought, like, fucking shit, that's crazy. You know, like, ooh, I wonder what that's going to be like. And so the few, like, really horrific kind of death scenes that are in this movie were amazing like the the bullet through the key the peephole right. i mean everyone brings that up whenever sure. they're talking about anything and it's really cool but like when you actually like strip this movie down there's like almost no substance to this movie at all right i feel like there's enough for me anyway there's enough scenes um, that keep keep my attention and they're paced well enough apart from each other. Whether it's a really pretty cinematography shot or it's the gore, it always kind of keeps my attention. But for the most part, I, I do agree with you where it does kind of stagnate at various points throughout the film. And then it doesn't have that feeling like it's going to crescendo anywhere. Um, when I first saw that iconic picture of the, the needles near the eyelids... 
Uh, I actually thought, and this is before I had even seen it or anything, I just thought that that was going to be like a climactic scene in the film, something towards the end of the film. And then it kind of happens maybe a half hour or a little later in, and it kind of kills the momentum, I think, because then it doesn't seem as dangerous anymore. Yeah, there were some good POV shots. Yeah. There were even the POV shots from the girl with the needles on her eyes, and we're like kind of looking through the needles. That yeah. was kind of fun. Yep. You know, there yeah. there was some, and I'm gonna say some, like because I don't think that this was shot as well as other things of his by any means. And I don't know. I'm just I. I feel like if I watched this movie again, I would come back and say, I fucking hate this movie. But, like, right now, I'm just really indifferent to it. But, like, the end is, like, gotta be one of the stupidest fucking endings to any movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I know, it It has the perfect, well, I shouldn't say perfect, but it has a good enough ending with the fire in the room yeah. and, and everything. And then it just goes ape shit after that and who knows where that came from but. well let's let's talk about the ending because i think that you know when i hear people say that they don't like the ending i'm trying to figure out whether they mean everything that happened after she gets pulled out of the fire room or are they talking about where she just collapses on the grass and starts talking about how she likes the nature and all that shit um so she goes with mark to like the Swiss Alps or some shit, right? And he's working on trying to figure out how to film a fly on a thread in front of a mountainscape or something. And yeah. meanwhile, um, the reports come in that the guy, that the whole thing was a hoax and the guy, you know, the killer lives and uh, Betty is out walking around. So, I mean, I guess they decided to become lovers maybe at this point. You know, because of what they went through, that's why they're together, and she's going to be the actress in his film. Maybe I don't know. Um, I guess we're supposed to suppose all of that stuff. Um, that's a lot of supposing, though, dude. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. It's a lot of supposing. But, but like, um, th- but then he like, it's like, oh, I just saw this news thing, Betty. You got to get inside right now because even though we're like hundreds of miles away. He's probably right behind you. Get the fuck in the house. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the dogs go running past, and the helicopter comes flying over. And then all of a sudden, after after Mark is killed, she just does a 180 and pretends that she's into it, right? Yeah. And then when she sees the dogs... She automatically knows those are police dogs because they're not running towards them. So obviously they're police dogs. And she picks up a rock and beats the dude over the head. And then when the cops come, the cops are like, how did you know, you know, what were you saying to that guy? Well, I saw your dogs. So obviously the ruse was up and I knew it was time to start cracking heads with a rock. I don't know. So did, did we ever reveal? Yeah, we said that the cop was the killer. And his motivation was that there was some kind of lover's quarrel or he was scorned by her mother. Is that how it goes? Well, I think the idea was... He was her slave. Like, the the way it was portrayed the whole time was that he was the killer, she was his slave, 
and he would make her watch him kill people, and that was Betty's mother, right? I um, thought Betty's mother made him kill people for her amusement. Well, that's what he reveals at the very end, that he really was the slave, right? Like, the, yeah. like, like, like from a metaphorical standpoint, even though she was the one that was tied up, she forced him to do these things. And so, mm-hmm. what was his motivation to kill her? Who knows? Maybe some sort of revenge? I don't know. Um, yeah. Well, didn't it come back because her mom did Macbeth in 75, and now she's doing Macbeth, and it, like, brought everything back to him? Hmm. I don't know. False promises, once again. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'll take another viewing, but... Well, it's interesting for me because I like to spend a lot of time trying to, like, micromanage the whole motive thing and try to figure it out and make it it seem as plausible as possible, even though these Jolly are never that plausible. But with this one, I don't really think I spent much time thinking about it. Because Argento doesn't give a shit. Because Argento is the reason why you watch the movie, not the story. He knows that... People are going to watch his, and this is where a lot of questions come up because as you were talking about it being meta and all this stuff, I noticed there were a lot of little lines about this film director who was now making a opera. Right. And there were, there was something that the fucking stupid costume designer bitch said about like, just because you make really good movies doesn't mean that you could do anything else well or something like that. Right. Sure. And so like, I'm thinking like to myself, like, okay, so how cathartic is this story to where he was at as a person when this movie was made? Well, it totally is. It's not even like uh, something that, that, that you can, you can hypothesize. It's really, it's been documented that this is, you know, very self-referential. If you look at um, Tenebrae, Tenebrae was the same thing where, you know, they, he was, but Tenebrae was good. Well, no, Tenebrae was, was much better and it had a, and had a cohesive plot and it was really well made. But the idea was that, um, you know, Argento was coming out against his, his critics who were saying that he was misogynistic and that he, you know, um, was a proponent of violence against women and Tenebrae was his reaction to this by just doing it even more. Um, but opera is like the same idea, except um, that he kind of went through more of a bleak period where he apparently went through some sort of depression. And, um, you know, this was his, this was his reaction to <clears throat> um, all of the stuff that was going on with him at that, that time in his career, I guess. So um, he makes a movie that is very brutal with no real substance or story and yeah i guess that's that would be the progression right as, yeah as yeah. a way of reacting you know i think my big problem with the ending to talk about that a little bit again um getting back to the the killer i actually kind of liked the whole uh misdirection with the body actually being a dummy that he threw into the fu- into the flames, because I mean, when you looked at it anyway, it already looked like a dummy. But then that's that whole thing. Like, how did he get out of the room? Because he would yeah. have had to lock the door with the key if he went out the door, but the key was in right. the room. Right. So, so he hid off camera again and was able to <laughs> disappear into the nothing. Yeah. He, he probably had a trap door. Come on. 
he he knows that place. But uh, but yeah, I liked I liked how he made his return at the end. But then it just it doesn't pay off because it's he he makes his return and then he's apprehended immediately. So it's like, what was the whole point of all that? Just to get one more lick in? I don't know. It, well, she had to sing, talk a poetry to a lizard. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. You can't really do that inside of an opera house, I guess. She could have talked poetry to a crow. And that's another but, thing. What the fuck is the difference between a crow and a raven? Is there any? I think uh, I geography. <clears throat> really? <laughs> I've heard that, but I think I, I also heard that ravens are a lot bigger in size. Okay. And it seems like crows are more common. Like that's it seems like like they're the lower class of I think birds. It's kinda like a, a square and a rectangle where all ravens are crows, but not all crows are ravens. Something like that. Yeah, okay. If that makes sense. That sounds good. I like that. Okay, Wait, that. let me see. All ravens are crows, but not all crows are ravens. Right. But then that would make the raven common. Well, well, maybe not. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, there's many different species of crows. I guess. There's anyway, the black ones and then the the black ones. So right. Yeah. Time to close Wikipedia. Um. <laughs> an, another <laughs> little bit, uh, and maybe this. I mean, it doesn't really. Okay. Well, like the dialogue in this movie seemed really sharp. Like, it was very, like, nothing was subtle in the dialogue. It was like, I'm I'm mad, I'm not mad, I'm scared, I'm okay. Like, everything was very to the point. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, she's all fucking, like, the whole nature speech. Right. It didn't, it didn't fit at all. It was so different. Yeah. Like, she, like there was no character. There really was no characterization of Betty. Like we didn't really get to know her at all, um, because she like was how she, she had that bitch in apartment. If she, she'd never done anything. Before. Oh, I know. Well, they probably just put her up there because she was an understudy. Um, but like this scene after she gets, after the very first time where she goes through that, um, that torture, and you know her boyfriend gets stabbed, and they. And the the killer lets her go, and now she's walking around, and she runs into Mark, and Mark basically picks her up and starts driving her down the street. And she's drying her hair with the with the heater, and <laughs> she just starts talking about the differences between men and women and sexism, and like it doesn't make any like the conversation was so awkward. And you're thinking, you realize what just happened to this woman, and she's not talking about it at all. Like, why is this? Like, I don't, you know, it didn't make any sense. Um, and, you know, the, eventually she says, you know, I can't even tell you how bad this was. It's, it was just so bad, I can't even tell you. Um, and then eventually they cut away and talk uh, and then they come back, and she has explained everything to Mark. But I just, you know, it, clearly I'm expecting things to be a little bit more gauged in reality. Um, and it, if the, it if would I have had, been neat to see. If I had see. gone through that, 
you know, if I was the girl who'd gone through that and I just ripped those things off my eyes and, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Don't you think it, that... It would have been neat to see her being the killer because the only people who ever saw her tied up were dead. And she always managed to get untied. Like, that would have been a better story. Well, and tied her up. More reason that why she acted like such a bonkers lunatic. Well, I mean, that chick got shot in the eye, and she was in the room. So I don't know how she would have pulled that off. Right. Well, you just, but still, yeah, I don't know. You just do that whole she unreliable narrator thing, and it doesn't make any difference. No. Yeah. Then I would have been bitching about that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, That's true. Whatever. <laughs> That's true. We would have been bitching about something else instead. So, um, what do you guys think about the music? Because I think, Creep, you said that you know the, the, the music really ruins the film. The opera stuff, I like. Like, uh, um, La Traviata from uh, Pretty Woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed that stuff. Um, but the metal shit every time he's killing somebody and when she's like running through the street, it yeah. seems kind of out of place and it really dates the movie. No, totally. To me. So. But that's the thing. Like, uh, I'm thinking that, you know, again, with Argento um, trying to like, it's so funny, like, okay, you you look at the first two Giallo, or the first two Gialli that Argento did, we had Morricone, who was obviously a well-established composer in the, in the Italian cinema, and then <clears throat> you have, um, when he got to this third film, and Morricone started doing things that clearly Argento didn't like very much, um... It, you know, he switched over to Goblin, right? And so Goblin um, really uh, came on the scene and shook everything up because when it was time for somebody in Deep Red to get killed, instead of all the suspense music, it was like this progressive 70s rock music. And it, it, it screwed everything up and it, it totally threw everybody for a loop, right? <clears throat> and then in evolving that even further, when you get to um, what phenomena, he uses some Iron Maiden and a few other like 80s metal bands. And so I think this is kind of like the next step of that, but it was like, it was it was a bad step. You know, the, the step, yeah. it was a misstep almost. Like the, the metal isn't, the, again, I think I mentioned this already, but it doesn't seem like this is real metal. It seems like it's imitation copycat heavy metal. It sounds a lot like Iron Maiden's Power Slave and, uh, you know, their, that period of Iron Maiden and um, Saxon and Accept and those, those bands from the mid-80s like Motley Crue and, and whatnot. That's what it sounds like to me, but <clears throat> if you look at the credits, it's all, uh, what is it, Simonetti who did most of the, um, most of the metal uh, songs in the film are credited to him. I don't know if he just wrote them and had some other band play them or <clears throat> how much he got involved in the performance, but I I think it was like our, and, and then even in Demons too, I know Demons um, 
Lombardo Bava's film, they used a lot of heavy metal in a lot of places too. So I think yeah. that was just the trend and he was, you know, continuing to do that. I, <clears throat> I also kind of marvel at how much budget they had for this film because clearly they had a shit ton of money to make this movie. Um, the opera house and all the people and, um, you know, the special effects that clearly, you know, they spent a little bit of money on and, um, <clears throat> they had so many extras and so many different people in the film, like the, the scene where it's the opening night of the, of the opera and the camera's kind of panning across and the stage manager is running from one place to the next and there's all these people running back and forth and it's, it's your typical Argento scene where he throws five or six things into the, into the frame to make you try to figure out what to pay attention to and you know, what, what's the off kind of, what, what's, the, what's the thing that's, that's happening sort of off screen that you really should pay attention to, that kind of thing. Um, but again, you know. Um, to, to, to sum up how much money was spent on this movie, so much money was spent on this movie that the gloved hands had gloves. The gloved hands had gloves. That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. That was badass. But they weren't isotoners. So it wasn't that much money. Another Ace Ventura joke. See, I'm with you. Yeah. Come on, Dan Marino. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I wanted to know which, which parts Brian Eno played. I was trying to figure that out. Because I saw he was attached to the soundtrack. Um, I really liked I liked the opera parts, especially when she was walking through the house. That was the only time that I really felt a lot of suspense. I thought the opera kind of almost fit, you know, weird, um, weird way. But yeah, the the metal. I liked it during the first kill for some reason because because I almost forgot how much they used metal in these kind of eighties uh, Italian films. But then when the second kill and then when they just started using it out of nowhere, just when they were walking around, yeah. I got pretty sick of it. Well, one of the other suspense scenes that I liked was when they were walking through the. Uh, when when Betty and the little girl were crawling through the shaft, the you know the air duct that was like at, on a curve, and um, uh -huh. you really couldn't see what was in front of you too much, and you knew that he was kind of behind them, <clears throat> and then they were looking into various rooms, and then they finally come into the one room and they hide right under the the vent so that when he walks, when he crawls past, he can't see that they're in there. I thought that was a pretty well done suspenseful scene. Well, even the before that, um, I think it was before that, when um, she puts the shit in her eyes and lets the cop in, and then um, Nickelodeon comes in, and she's like, oh, wait, the cop's down the hall? No, he's in here. And then they're like, oh, shit, well, what if he's not that one? And the one down the hall is really the right. one. And they're like, oh, shit. Like, that whole bit was kind of cool. But there was another one of those... Um, uh, like in The Shining, the impossible windows, because they were at the door, and then oh, yeah. right next to the door is the kitchen, but they were lit with the lights flashing from outside on the si same wall that the hallway on the other side of the wall should be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, you know, I yes. didn't pay attention, but I, I, if I went back and looked, I'm sure I would notice it. That was like, I was like, oh, that's fucking cool. But, um, yeah, I don't know if that was intended, but. 
Well, and you guys know, too, that the guy who ultimately shows up as Daniele Suave is Michel Suave. Right. The director. Ah. Dario's buddy. That's the stage fright guy, right? Yeah. He did yeah. stage yeah. fright and a bunch of other wacky films. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was, you know, he's, they, they name dropped him, but they call him D- Daniele instead of Michel. Uh, another girl's name. I don't know why. Um, hey, there are manly names over there. Um, <laughs> it's like Bruce. And then the bullet was magic, too. It went through the keyhole, went through her head, <laughs> and then somehow managed to hit the phone on the floor. And it Maybe it ricocheted right the her head. Too. I don't know. Okay, Zapruder. Well, and again, you know, like Argento, he's always doing this these gimmicks and that this one was really well done. I thought, um, if you look at, there were a few other things that I think that he, he did that were interesting. Like when they, when they, uh, got the, the, the stinky perfume and she pours it down the drain, he's got the camera at the bottom of the drain with the, with Mm -hmm. the, um, with the, the two characters looking into the bottom of the sink. But if you look at some of his other films, like, especially Stendhal Syndrome, I don't know if you guys have seen that, but the big thing when Stendhal Syndrome came out was computer animation, like CGI was huge in Hollywood, and Argento decided to add something into his film that had some computer animation in it, and it was dumb. It was like, um, the main character takes uh, a pill, and when she swallows them, there's this computer animation of these pills, like, going down her esophagus into her stomach or something. And it's like, what the fuck? Why is this happening? This doesn't need to happen at all. Um, it was like a special effect for just the sake of special effect. And it was so dumb. Is that, is that kind of when they kept showing the brain pulsating? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was, that was yep, that was in opera. They kept showing the brain pulsing. It was yeah. Very, very dumb. But, you know... Um, can you say? Yeah. That's what it is. Not much. I think I'm more interested in some of the trivia with this film than than the film itself. But Hit it. maybe reading some of this might color my next viewing of it. But um, as I mentioned to you guys before the show, I actually picked this up uh, through Arrow Video because I was kind of intrigued by what their treatment might have been and I didn't own a copy of it yet um, but there was a nice little essay by Alan Jones in there and that had some some interesting bits of trivia uh, like you guys mentioned this was an expensive film I think around eight million dollars production Wow but interestingly the uh, the people that usually funded him uh, including his father Salvatore uh, and uh, I can't remember the name of the other guy I think he mentioned it in here something Lombardo. Uh, who had funded him since Bird with a Crystal Plumage, uh, his company was in turmoil. So he kind of, and his, yeah, his father, Salvatore, died a month before the film started. Mm. So he was kind of, he had all this money, and uh, he was basically his own producer on the film after that point. Um, but as we mentioned, they, they do a stage production of Macbeth, which people who are in theater know not to even say the name of that play because it, brings bad luck and that kind of tainted this whole film starting from the the death of Dario's father uh, 
the guy who played Mark, Ian Charlson, actually suffered a near-fatal car crash during the production of the film, and that kind of affected... They said it kind of affected his performance. I don't know. I didn't see too much in regards to that, but they also, <laughs> kind of mirroring the... Uh, we said a little bit of meta elements in this one. The uh, the main actress walked off the stage because she she just didn't like what was going on. Well, the, uh, the actually the girl who played Betty uh, in this one, um, I'm blanking on her first name. Christina, I think. Yeah, Christina Marcelock was she herself was a total diva on the set. And a uh, little fun fact that Alan mentions in his his because uh, he was on the set of the production. He thinks that that. Or the the rumor was that Dario extended the burning scene just to kind of torture her on the set. <laughs> that she actually walked away with some burns. Um, other other ways that Dario kind of invested himself into the the production, um, and we mentioned that it might have been kind of cathartic for him. People kind of know of his relationship with Daria Nicolodi, Nicolodi, who is the mother of Asia. Um, they were on the outs for quite a while after they divorced and he first wanted her to come on to the into the film to play the, the role of that uh, actress who walked off the set and um, eventually put her in the role of the the agent which was a much larger role uh, in in uh, relation to the, the other uh, character that she could have played and it was they think it was because they wanted or he wanted her to be the one to take the bullet through the head <laughs> at the door. So cathartic murder scene, perhaps for him. And then uh, one last thing, uh, we we talked a little bit about the cinematography being a little bit different. Um, Dario Argento maybe being a little influenced differently in this film than his past films. He got a new one on the set, an Englishman, Ronnie Taylor, who he had met while uh, doing a Fiat commercial. And I guess this Taylor was very squeamish to gore. He hadn't done a lot of gore uh, as a cinematographer. So that's why some of the gore scenes were actually amped up because Dario was kind of having fun with the cinematographer and extending those shots and bringing out the, the buckets of blood. And um, yeah, it all kind of just came from this idea that uh, Dario was asked to do an opera, Rigoletto, and uh, he wanted to turn the main character into a perverted vampire and have a lot of gory murder in the <laughs> opera. So he was eventually rejected from that. But he went on to make this film, of course, and got to kind of do it his way. But he, I guess he kind of fell in love with the whole opera aesthetic and uh, the way, you know, it kind of comes off, I guess you could say, in some of the, the shots in this film. And that's what I got for trivia. It sounds like he's a real bastard. Yeah, <laughs> this, know, this doesn't sound good at all. He, well, he plays him kind of in a in a in a shining light throughout the essay, just talking about how he's this tortured soul who's, an, who's also just this great artist. But then there's these tinges of these these ways that he would torture his cast and crew. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I heard stories about um, when they were filming Suspiria that he would like 
he would blast that goblin music as loud as possible to just put everyone on edge and freak everyone the fuck out. And he did it on purpose so that when they finally got on camera, they would act, you know, they would have a little bit more of a, you know, the, the edginess of sitting and listening to that music all day just kind of lended itself to their performances. But I don't know if that's true or not, but <laughs> it's pretty wild stuff. Just wants authenticity. Can't yeah. fault him for that. Or maybe you can. You could probably put him in jail for it, actually. Well, I mean, it, he, he put his own daughter in a film where she gets raped, so, I mean... Yeah. You know, That's probably uh, because she, like, didn't throw away her Coke can or something. Yeah. Didn't do her homework. Or to get back at the mother even more. <laughs> what a butt face. <laughs> <laughs> Not the literal kind. That's someone else. Yeah. Butthole face. Yeah. You're disgusting. You're always naked. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So is that is are we done with that? Mercifully, yes. Yeah. I'm, just, so. I'm trying to think if there's. I feel bad because I know a lot of people like this movie. And typically when I really don't like something, you guys yell at me. And I feel like you guys haven't yelled at me enough yet. I feel like all of us are walking away from this kind of jaded. Yeah, I mean, personally, I haven't changed my opinion of the film. But again, it's one of those films where um, part of the reason why I like it is for the nostalgia. Because I watched it so long ago. And it makes me feel, you know, like uh, it brings me back to an, a time when I was younger and I was discovering horror films. Um, but I, there, there's enough about the movie that I like that I'll continue to like. And um, I don't really have a problem with the ending. I mean, I know that, I, I don't know, I, I sometimes put too much faith in directors and... I feel like, well, they're the authority of their own movie, so if they're going to do it this way, then I'm just going to go with it. And that may be my own fault um, in, in many cases. But like, You're enabling him to continue to do stuff like that. Right. Well, clearly, that uh, he's had a, not, a lot of enablers, and look where it's gotten him. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and look where he's at now. Um, he's making a movie with uh, Iggy Pop. So, um, But... Uh, you know, a lot of people, and Argento himself included, have always said that his films are more kind of along the lines of dreams or nightmares. And so, you know, clearly that's the cop-out excuse for why the film doesn't make any sense. But if yeah. you want to take him at his word, um, certainly, you know, David Lynch says the same thing, but people don't call him a hack because clearly his movies are better than Argento's. But, um you know, it's it's definitely a cop-out to say, well, this is more of a dream than anything else. And when you do Suspiria and Inferno, which clearly have absolutely no um, logical, you know, sequence of events or, you know, plot line, you can reference the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be a dream sequence or it's supposed to be a dream-influenced plot. But with opera, there's a lot going on. And I know, again, we talked about the self-referential and there's a lot of, like, uh, metaphorical, psychological, psychoanalysis things happening with the dream sequences and Freud, and you can look into all of that stuff. And I think that 
you know, knowing Argento enough about the way that he thinks about his sub subplots or his subtext of his films that he probably thought about that stuff. It's not a coincidence that things are added to the film the way that they've been added. Um, you know, somebody can go through and say, well, this is clearly, you know, a reference to this uh, philosopher well, I, or whatever. But uh, I think maybe Argento did think about some of that stuff to a certain extent when he made this film. So I'm just a little pissed off because I'm thinking about it now. And I think I like this less than Four Flies. And that's like heartbreaking. You like how go, dare him. You should go back and watch Four Flies again, I would think. Dude, I've watched that movie like seriously. Oh, you watched it a lot? <laughs> I've watched it more times than I should have. Oh, okay. But, but <laughs> I thought maybe you'd only seen it a couple times. So which but one which one is, have you seen just, more? Which have I seen more? Yeah, of the of the I've seen two. Four Flies more. Oh, okay. I've, I've only seen Opera twice. Okay. But um I think I like Four Flies better. Yeah, I, You're I going against canon. That's shocking. Yeah, I, you can't, can't do this. Very upset now. I think that's a fair statement, though. I think Four <laughs> Flies is, is a better film than Opera. Just it, overall. Yeah. It um, is. I that's think fucking horrific. There are, certain, there are certain aspects of Opera that I like better than Four Flies, but I think if you did Opera an, is very much like the Hostel movies, and I think you said that earlier with the torture porn, because right. I think the only reason why people would like this movie would have to be the kill scenes, because there isn't anything... There's nothing else to it. ...really else to yeah. it. I mean, the POV of the, the Ravens circling around the opera house was probably a high point. Yep. You know, but like, I can't believe this. I feel I, wow. I, I've had an epiphany and I'm not sure I enjoy it. So good Lord. Well, what would you, you say? You must still be depressed. What would you say uh, is your favorite? And we, we have to exclude the non jolly here. But what would you guys say is your favorite Argento Jolly? What would you think is the best one? I would have said Tenebrae a long time ago, but I like Bird with the Crystal Plumage more and more every time I watch it. We have to go back and listen to that first podcast. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't like it. When you we took first a giant did. shit on it. You did. Yeah, I told you. I was you. all by myself. <laughs> But um, a naive little boy. But like, uh, I think Trauma is a better movie than this. I think Do You Like Hitchcock is a better movie than this. Um, yeah. So, I think Jalo is a better movie than this. Okay. I haven't I haven't seen that, so I can't comment. <laughs> yeah, I haven't either, actually. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll do that one day. Yeah, I think we'll I still like Deep Red. Yeah, that was one of my first, if not the first I'd seen, and I it still holds a special place. Kind of not as not like opera to you, Chris, as much. But um, I know you said that that was. I mean, you see its flaws, but it, it's kind of nostalgic. Right. See, that's Tenebrae kind of, is that for me. Yeah, and Deep Red. So that, I think that. And that I like Deep Red a lot too, but that middle is just so long. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to watch the American version. 
<laughs> there you go. They cut out half of the like the the parts in deep red where Mark is walking around in the house looking for shit. Oh my fucking god, dude! Yeah, they they uh, they took a lot of that out of the American. I hope version. so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm these days I am so on the fence between Tenebrae and Deep Red. Like Deep Red used to be, you know, the be all end all of Jolly for me, but more and more. Um, every time I watch Tenebrae, I'm just like, man, this is a fucking great movie. Like, I just, isn't it? Yeah, it's so awesome. And and I like, I really like Cat of Nine Tails too. So, you know, I, I I but opera is not in the not even close to the top for me. I, I think you're right. Yeah. I think Trauma is even a better one. So, all that being said, I still like watching opera. I guess for the reasons that we, you know, for all the positive reasons that we, we've mentioned tonight, um, that's kind of why I would watch it. I'm, like, if, let's say Argento made opera under a different name for no fucking real reason, do you think anyone would even know that movie today? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. Like if he had called it Terror at the Opera? No, if he made it under... Oh, if he like changed Eric Bergstrom. Ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Maybe Butt Douglas. I'd, I'd watch that movie. Then. No, I'm just saying, like, you know what I'm saying. I just feel like Argento's name on this movie is season. what makes people watch this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it probably would be like a bad stage fright blade in the dark 80s no. kind of I mean it's it's no death laid an egg no. let's just sure. nothing let's is just get that out of the way you know, <laughs> at the end of the show yeah <sighs> alright unfortunately, unfortunately that movie will still have to wait death laid an egg the, the mysterious jolly that coming we'll 2016 never get to. yep <laughs> We gotta dangle that carrot a little longer. <laughs> uh, so, um, do we want to talk about what we're doing next? Since that was a topic of a twenty-minute debate before the show started. <laughs> yes. Sure. Why not? I said we had to call the pizza delivery guy. Yeah. Uh, I'll take the lead if you guys want. Sure. Um, why not? So. Um, Clearly, we still have plenty of fan uh, and Jalo Chow Chow page member requests uh, for the group um, based on the poll that we set up uh, quite a while back. Um, but as we discussed offline, the poll is getting a little unwield, unwieldy. Is that the word? Yes, it is. And so um, we kind of made an executive decision as the... Um, staff here at Jalo Chow Chow uh, to take the next three films that uh, are due to be covered and close the polls. So now that I'm talking about this and can't find this stupid fucking thing on the page. Do you want me to just tell you? Uh, oh, here it is. Okay. So, um, so the next three uh, in popularity and this is based on the fact that 
uh, Eric and I changed our votes at the very last second before we <laughs> recorded. Um, we have Footprints on the Moon, which got a staggering six votes, and none of them from anybody, none of them from any of the staff here. So Footprints on the Moon is going to be our next film. And Footprints on the Moon is, for those people who actually don't know, um, directed by the same director who did The Fifth Chord. So I'm kind of looking forward to it because I really like The Fifth Chord. Um, after that, we're going to do So Sweet, So Dead, which was a request by Al Owens, our Italian correspondent. And um, also we're going to do The Bat, which was a request by... Uh, Jason Leisman, I think. Um, and we're going to cut the poll off there. So next podcast is Footprints on the Moon. After that, So Sweet, So Dead. And after that, The Bat. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and then... Once we get past um, The Bat, we're going to do staff picks again. Yes. Not because we don't think you guys have enough credibility to pick the movies for our shows. But because I think we would like to pick some too. Right. <laughs> well, we did have the chance to vote on our, on our own poll as well, as Chris mentioned. Um, but we also, like he also mentioned, it's getting a little unwieldy because there's a lot of picks with just one vote. It makes it kind of hard for us to really continue forward with some of those, those choices um, without Most of those being... movies were me throwing movies sure. up there and then voting for them. So it's basically so, yeah. what we do anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going to go ahead and uh, take a break from the fan votes after this um, because, like we mentioned, the rest of those those films on the poll only had one or two votes anyway. So we'll definitely get to those, I'm sure, in the future. But uh, we're going to go take a break for a little bit, get back to some of the classics because I don't think really the bad or... Uh, footprints on the moon qualify as classic but uh <laughs> we'll get back to the fan choice i'm sure somewhere down the line yeah and there yeah. are some people who don't even think that uh footprints on the moon is a giallo so we'll see um what we think of they, that next time but yeah i mean as long as i i as far as i'm concerned as long as there are people out there on the group that are interested in hearing what we think about these films we are certainly I, at least, am certainly interested in covering Sweet. all of them. Um, so, but I think, you know, what to, to Eric's point, there are a few uh, classic films in the genre that we haven't approached yet. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, some of the big films by Fulci, uh, Sergio Martino, um, Umberto Lenzi. Uh, we have a bunch of films that those three directors, just by themselves, we haven't covered. So... There's uh, an opportunity to do some more classic stuff. Um, but I, I like the way this is going. I like being able to jump out and do some fan requests or, you know, member requests and then come back and do some, some stuff that, uh, that we've had on our list for a while. So, and we've, we've covered a lot. And, and as far as the Jalo score is concerned, I'm up to, uh, I think, 46 films. And the podcast is on episode 35. So it's, uh, it's catching up. And again, we're, we're uh, there. as I mentioned before, when the when Jalloscore.com gets to 50 films, I'm going to add a, uh, a new section, which is going to take the 50 films 
that have been scored so far and break them down into various types of reports and aggregates and bar graphs and charts and stuff. And turn Are you going to do any pie graphs? It's going to be like some kind of crazy PowerPoint presentation for mentally um, psychotic people. Basically. Will you do like an hour-long PowerPoint and put it on YouTube? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? That would be so much fun. I'd do it. What the hell? What else do I have to do? Laser pointer. <laughs> Oh, that'd be so cool. I got to figure out PowerPoint. I'm yeah. like Michael Scott on The Office. PowerPoint, you point and it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so with that in mind, right. let me see if I can quickly find uh, Footprints on the Moon trailer while you guys uh, distract the audience with some banter. So I was flying in to Newark today. <laughs> And boy, are my arms tired. Wait, are we back to doing bad jokes again? (laughs) And who the hell lives in Newark? Where is that? Is that in... Newark is in New Jersey, and it's... uh, Jersey. Yeah. I must have been watching The Sopranos, and that must have come up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Newark is um, a really... It has a a lot of really bad sections. I think it used to be known as the carjacking capital of the world. Um, But they revitalized a lot of it. They put in a very big um, entertainment (laughs) entertainment complex um, where they film America's Got Talent, or at least they used to. They filmed that show there. Um, And they have, like, uh, a lot of stuff going on. So I think Camden has now become the bad place in Jersey. Although Newark has still got some bad spots to it. So. so we apologize for any listeners in Jersey who we have offended. If you live in Jersey, you're offended no matter what you do. <laughs> I used to be from New Jersey, so I can say that. But uh... Okay, I found Uh-oh. a trailer. All right. Wait, can I do a really quick knock-knock joke? Yeah, yes. Please. Just to end the show full circle. Knock-knock. Who's there? Daisy. Daisy who? They see me rolling. They hated. <laughs> what? That was so, awful. Like a 2006 reference. <laughs> Ride, the Riding Dirty song? Yeah. Okay, okay, I'll do one that's more fitting to Dario Argento. Okay. Okay. What do you call a masseuse who hates women? I don't know. What? A massage-nest. Oh, that was so obvious. <laughs> We're awful at this. <laughs> Did you guys ever do like the the jokes that are just dumb and and dumb for the sake of being dumb like um uh you know, you know the joke that says why is 6 afraid of 7? Cuz 7 8 9. Cuz 7 8 9. Well, my son and I have this thing where we do Hey, Dad, why is 9 afraid of 10? And I'll say, I don't know. And he'll say, because 10, 11, 12. And it's not, it doesn't mean anything, but it's really funny at the time. My, anyway. my daughter told a joke um, for about four years straight. <laughs> and it went, um, knock, knock. Who's there? Banana pants. <laughs> Banana pants who? Outside where he lives. And then she would like crack up laughing for like the longest time. That's a great one. And that was like the only joke she knew. And it wasn't even a joke, but she would fucking crack up laughing every time she said it. And um, Outside where he lives. 
Yep, that's the punchline, baby. That's a good one. All right. Well, Banana I've, pants. I found a uh, footprints trailer. It's also called Le Orme. I don't know if that's French or Italian, but anyway, uh, it's a very short trailer, a minute and 22, so... Uh, Let's hope there's words. We'll sign off. I mean, we could do the three minute and nine trailer, but it's probably just a yeah, minute and a half not. more of extra sounds and music. So. <laughs> yeah, people got to get to work. Okay, ciao, ciao, everybody. Here's the fucking trailer. All right. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. The shameless intro. Here it comes. Who put these footprints on my moon? <laughs> there are words, it's just that they're not being spoken. These look like big birds fleet. Making shit up. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Music. Wow, Five that happens. My <laughs> <Five> banana pants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's late. Oh, my God. All right, everybody.